Welcome, thanks for listening to A Certain Degree. My name is Nick. I host a weekly radio show that gets turned into this podcast, the one you're listening to right now. If you're an early riser, you can listen live every Monday starting at 7 a.m. on WPRK 91.5 FM. It also streams on WPRK.org, or you can subscribe wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Regardless of where you listen, this show is about people from the Orlando area who are doing something neat, and you're in for a treat, not, not a trick, because local author and podcaster John King is on this episode. He's gotten to interview not only amazingly talented writers from the Orlando area, but also some pretty big names in the literary world. Speaking of big names, is there one bigger than Guy Psycho? That's the eponymous hero of John's recently published novel, Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame. Intrigued? Then listen up. For more on John and all of the other guests, please visit to a certain degree.com. And now on with the show. Medeski, Martin, and Wood on WPRK in Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to A Certain Degree. That was the end of the world party. Good morning. My name is Nick. I do this every week from 7 to 9 a.m. And from 7 to 9 a.m., I have a very special guest. This week is no exception. Author, raconteur, uh, some other things. John King is here. Good morning, John. (laughs) Good morning. Thank you so much for coming in this early. Well, it is extraordinary for me to be up this early and for there not to be a hospital involved. So Okay. Well it's the I'm night trying is to young. Enjoy it. The night is young, so it's we'll good see to see if, you as always. Yes, and you as well. <laughs> uh so this will be your first dawn in some time then. Of the sun rising, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so. Great. Great. Well good. I'm glad I could be a small part of making you get up uh so early. So we're gonna talk about John, we're gonna talk about the Drunken Odyssey, your podcast which is going on close to episode 400. Is that correct? We're creeping up on it. Yeah. yeah 387 so, dropped uh, last weekend. So we're going to have some sort of big party, I would imagine, at number 400. <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, we're also I'm gonna, open to suggestions. Your novel just came out, uh, Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame. You're nodding, but this is yes. a podcast and a radio show, so you actually have to say it out loud. Yes, that happened. Okay, great. Perfect. <laughs> John, uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. We're going to play a game, uh, sort of a 20 questions, like first thing that comes into your mind. But instead of saying yes or no, up or down, we're going to play a game called the once or future king. So the once king, if you're for something, because what's better than just being a king once? The future king, if you're not for something, if you feel like it's not great or it's not for you, because who wants to be the king in the future? It'd be much better to be the once king right now is my understanding. Okay. Is that the way that works? Well, my name is King, so I'm already putting all kinds of semiotics into this that Excellent. don't need to be there. So. Excellent. Uh, the once or future King, John, driverless cars. The once King, once if king. you're for something. Once King. Oh, yeah. Would you get in one? Like right now? Sure. If I had one outside, idling, driving up. Well, I, or, uh, I, I think I would eagerly, like five years from now, I'll okay. be all in. Got right it. now, I'm totally for watching other people. <laughs> Go ahead and test this out for me. But and in we'll principle, yeah, work out some of the bugs. But no, I'm confident that um, I can pay even less attention to the road when I'm in my vehicle getting from place to place. So, 
Great. That fills me with all sorts of <laughs> enthusiasm to be on the road with you. That is good. Uh, are you a technology person, technophile in general? No, I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I'm a highly proficient amateur at various forms of technology. Perfect. Uh, I recently got a, an older model iPhone, not mm-hmm. not early, early, but you know, not the latest one. And uh, kind of like the human brain, I think I'm using like maybe 5% of its capacity Wonderful. Know, to do things at this point. So that's exactly how much you probably should be using at any given time. <laughs> yeah. That's good. And you've been on it the entire time you're here. So you've been posting to Facebook, you're tweeting. Uh, right now, you're not even looking me in the eye. You're just using your phone. <laughs> I'm sorry, what were you saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, let's move on. You are not a native Floridian, I don't think. True. And so the beach, the once or future king. Once king, though that took time. Oh, okay. That took time. When did you move down? Uh, around the time of the bicentennial, uh, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so as a child, I loathed the beach. I'm like, okay, so we get to travel so I can get sand up my crack. Like, what? why? And I just you remember... Would, you would have preferred just getting sand in your crack at home. Uh, I preferred a book even back then. So it's like, <laughs> okay, like I'm in a comfy chair. I'm reading a book. And even better, I've got another book waiting after that book. Mm. So why do we have to go to the beach where, uh, unlike everyone else, you're going to make sure that I'm nice and dry because you're going to make me, you're going to form an impromptu tent with uh, beach towels and then make me get naked in public so that I can change into uh, dry shorts. Uh, Like, why can't I just put the towel army and go home like everybody else? Mm -hmm. So like there was a huge kind of variety of, phobias involved in going to the beach as a kid but uh you know i have really changed on that and being by the ocean uh you know i mean that's part of the appeal of the drunken odyssey is this idea of being on the water so took me a while but no i'm okay very pro beach very nice how about zombies oh i am that's future king yeah i have nothing to do with so is a storytelling I, I, device I, or in real life? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I hold nothing against Lazarus, but uh, overall, yeah, the zombie thing does very little for me. Okay. You think that, uh, what would your genre of horror be if you had one as a reader? Well, I mean, if I had to tell a zombie story, it would probably be bureaucratic about the zombies just trying to, you know, create a new society. And since their brains are completely rotten, like no one can even finish a sentence. So mm-hmm. that's probably what that would look like. So not unlike real life. <laughs> Perfect. I like it. What about, uh, let's move to food here for a second. How do you feel about jerky? Future King. Not so much. Dried meats. Uh, at, at this point, uh, I'm going through a thing uh, with my whole GI system. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, anything spicier than a plain bagel at this point is suspect for me. Okay. A lot of plain bagels in your future. A lot of plain bagels. And yeah, and that also includes alcohol, unfortunately. So oh, no. Not I that mean, we're close to the drinking hour. but Right. 
I said that very specifically. Well, then I guess that leads us. Let me ask you this next oh, question. Did I, did I ruin future questions? No, no, not okay. at all. Because this is something that uh, Glenn Livett uh, just came out with. I, we're not sure it's a joke or not. It's some sort of <laughs> alcohol show that was happening, I think, overseas somewhere. Uh, whiskey capsules. So it's basically their whiskey in these little Tide Pod-like things. Now, don't eat Tide Pods but it's a seaweed-based enclosure. You just pop it in your mouth, squeeze it, the whiskey comes out, and then you eat the little seaweed thing. That sounds awful. It does, doesn't it? So that's a question, Future King. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same page there. I mean, I, I can imagine trying to work that out with rum. Mm. Whiskey sounds, I don't know, uh, like whiskey and anything other than a glass. Just sounds it's, that's deeply sipping. inappropriate. That's Whereas for sipping. If you've got uh, rum, either nice rum or even fairly mediocre rum, yeah, it's like okay, throw some of these in your pocket and hang around the beach, and like okay, the convenience of that. And rum to me seems indeterminate enough. Like culturally, what can you do yeah. with rum? What feels okay? What doesn't feel okay? Like okay, rum, you can dress it up, but it could also be trashy. So yeah. I like that too. I mean, just that idea of sneaking booze into different venues and things like that is you would have to have a flask and there's the complications that come along with that. If you just had some of these capsules to throw in your pocket, as you mentioned, the as long as you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. All right. I think we're on to something. We'll do bad business ideas in the next hour. So let's just hang on to that as a, as a potential one. <laughs> All uh, right. Cursive, the writing style, not the band. Did you have to learn cursive when you were a kid? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, and as yeah, a the writer. Came. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm bad at it. I have yeah. the penmanship of a serial killer. Um, but, uh, no, I'm a fan. Do you, uh, when you're writing now, I would imagine computer for the most part. Not as much as I would like. I mean, so much of my life is about just trying to, uh, take notes about the fragments that are appearing in my mind so that maybe later they will go into the larger piece of writing that I don't have time to concentrate on. So you've got everything floating in your head as the things pop up into some sort of coherence. You got to jot them down. Yeah. My brain is like that giant plastic Island in the ocean mm -hmm. and more plastic keeps accumulating onto it. And so, yeah, uh, you know, I, I would really look forward to the day when I can maybe, I don't know, organize that Island or get rid of it. And maybe, I don't know, build something better. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, uh, you know, I do have some computer notes and that's even more frightening than the post-its or what I write on my hand like Sarah Palin. Oh, very nice. So I was wondering up and down your arm, I thought that was like a memento type of thing, situation uh, where you're trying to remember some stuff. I have no idea where that came from. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's go back. That's to not even my penmanship. So. Uh-oh. Let's go back to, let's keep going with the show <laughs> okay. as we try to figure that out and piece that together. Uh, technology, again, uh, you've seen CrowdShare bicycles around town, the Lime bikes and the, you go up okay. and you have an app and you can ride your bike and, or ride a bike and then leave it somewhere else. You've seen those? Yeah. Uh, so CrowdShare scooters, electric scooters, like the little Razor, like very small ones, not necessarily like a Vespa or anything. Oh. What do you think about those? Yeah, that's definitely Future King. Not so much for you. I, I trust robots to get us to and fro, but I don't trust strangers with uh, with a Vespa. With, <laughs> with small electric vehicles yep. that can come hurtling at you. 
Well, it's weird think, that you don't trust people. Uh, you know, I think people think they're so cute, and it's like, no, you could do serious damage to. Oh yeah, and they have uh, aging people like myself who are trying to walk around and get on the sidewalk, and yeah. So sounds for, like a menace. For every Croucher scooter they have out there, should they also rent you some sort of weaponry in case those guys start getting too close to you? Yeah, like a giant mace. Yeah, yeah, or just the regular size mace. Those are pretty big as well. Actually, what would be sporting would be those Brazilian, uh, like bolo balls, where you oh yeah the, yeah the you throw it and you wrap rope. them up yeah yeah I like that that sounds okay. fair because you have to have some level of skill as well, and then you can get some distance on them too. Right, I mean if you can lift the mace, there's not really a lot of technique to it. At least no. not if you're attacking a Vespa. Like if you're attacking Correct. a monster truck, go at it. That's that's you know. Okay, this is another bad business idea right here. <laughs> is instead of monster truck rallies, which are really just the trucks doing the same thing over and over again, is humans fighting monster trucks. Bring in a horde of MMA barbarians with maces and, yeah. See who wins. Yeah. I like it. Okay, we're coming up with some good ideas. And you said you were going to be, like, slow in the morning. (laughs) This is gold, man. You're just coming up with them left and right. Uh, Disney remakes the cartoons to live-action movies, The Once or Future King. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Future King. Like we've seen these. Um, and, you know, I, I try not to be that guy, mm-hmm. the the old guy. I, I, I love Disney. And, uh, you know, I realize that there's going to be a generation of people for whom, you know, the live action Aladdin, that's their Aladdin. It was when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone who's kind of gone back and re-experienced a lot of the stuff I enjoyed as a kid, yeah, some of the stuff remains still locked in my imagination. Like, no, that's still great. Uh, you know, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, still great. That 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 sequence in the uh, oh, you know, in the, in the, in the river, yeah, yeah, in the tunnel. Oh my, like that's that's scarier than Alien. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, I, I'm not sure other people behave in the same way where it's like, no, like the critical faculty never really touches the stuff they loved when they were kids. Uh, and, and so I think remakes should be radical rather than safe. So, uh, you know, if it was like the Lion King set on Mars, I'm like, okay, that sounds goofy, but you're trying. So it's something very different. Yeah. Yeah. And from a storytelling standpoint, just telling the same story over and over again, that doesn't that doesn't do anything for you either. Oh, it does something bad. Like, I yeah. just feel like I'm being hollowed out. All right. Fair enough. Uh, tiny houses. I'm a relatively tall person mm-hmm. and broad-shouldered, and I've got a gut. So, uh, yeah, in principle, you know, they seem like a future king thing but on the other hand uh like i think i don't know like if you had one pretty good piece of property you could probably kind of build a commune and so so build a few uh, i think my robot you know duplicates desperately need that kind of a a situation so uh i'm gonna go yeah once king on that even though for me personally like i need a little bit more space than that but yeah i I love uh, the idea a, a tiny house with some extra big doors. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it'll work personally for me, but I love the idea. Can we go back to the commune where you and all of your robot duplicates live? Because then it's harder for your enemies to find you. 
Oh, I didn't talk about that. Yeah. Oh, you didn't? I don't think so. Okay. Well, just in case, that's a great idea. All right, let's leave it at this for now. Cobbler, the dessert, not the person who fixes your shoes. One's king. Yeah. Cobbler's great. Do you have a favorite type? Um, I don't have a favorite recipe, but mm. a cobbler made in a real Dutch oven. Oh, okay. And then you pull it right out of that Dutch. Like you have to, you have to get the embers off of this, you know, a giant piece of metal stuck in the middle of a campfire. That's There's something, funny. you know, primal and civilized and, you know, you feel like a, a creature straight out of uh, Lord of the Rings yeah. when you get to have cobbler. You have to let it cool a little bit, but, you know, when it's like, yeah, no, this was buried in a fire in the earth and now it's now it's like a peach cobbler. Or now it's in my mouth. Yeah. yeah, and now it's in my mouth and it's okay to die now. Like okay. the skies, the eons, they're, they're surrounding me. So I absolutely think we should do that as well. How And over yeah. cake, over pie. Okay, I was going to ask, is that one of your favorite? So that particular, it has to be prepared that way. Yeah, though. yeah. Fresh out of a Dutch oven. Out of a Dutch oven, and that's the From way. From someone who knows a good recipe. Like you can't just, like if I made it, all right, you probably don't want to eat it. But. Right. Very nice. Uh, a couple other things I just wanted to mention before we go to break, and we'll talk more about your podcast which uh, people can find at thedrunkenodyssey.com. Is that correct? That's right. And, you and can also, on all of the uh, streaming. All of the various uh, Stitchers and Apples and Googles and Podbeans. And there's so many names now. Yeah. I can't, I can't. Castbox, which sounds more like a phishing app than anything else. Uh, but we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that. Just some things that happen on this day in history. Uh, I thought this was pretty interesting and coincidental. Uh, 1955. Howl was read for the first time. So that's the uh, Ginsburg poem. In 1982, I know you're a big musical fan. Uh, Cats debuted on Broadway. Uh, so that was really neat. I'm more of a T.S. Eliot fan than a <laughs> musical fan. But. Uh, 1885, this was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, it's Neil Bo- Niels Bohr, uh, his birthday. Uh, he went on to win the Nobel Prize for chemistry. And so one of the things that he won as part of that or Carlsberg beer gave him was a house right next to the brewery with a tap going right to his house. Wow. So he got hot and cold running beer, I would imagine. And then in 1849... That could have uh, inspired Homer Simpson to actually care about science. 100%. If we could explain to more people what happened to Niels Bohr. (laughs) Yep. He might have also come up with the whiskey pod. Uh, Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe on this day, 1849, passed away. It was a good time. Look Halloween-ish. So good on him for thinking that far forward. <laughs> nice job, Edgar. Is it, do you think he just went by Edgar or Edgar Allan? What would you call Mr. him? Poe. Oh, you would call him Mr. Poe. I would. You would give him his due, as it were. Well, he was a very proud and uh, insecure man, so... Uh, I, you yeah. know, I, I've had my problems with his pros in the past and mm-hmm. uh, been snarky uh, with some of my friends who are big Poe fans. But the older and stranger I get and, you know, the more drinking I did, certainly like I just saw more and more analogies between me and Mr. Poe. So oh. I've uh, w- one of the signs of, of middle age and I don't know if it's maturity or, or simply mellowing out some, but is seeing signs of similarity between you and Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah, and letting him be his crazy okay. self and 
you know, like, okay, so the occasional purple prose. Yeah, he's allowed. Okay, good to know. Uh, the music today, I've started reading your book, uh, Guy, Psycho, and the Ziggurat of Shame. And so while reading, I was actually listening to music and the songs that really stuck out to me that I think Guy Psycho would like, uh, I picked for today. So the next one we're going to hear is by a band called Menomina. And this is Plumage <laughs> on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. I'm here with John King, and you're listening to A Certain Degree. Podcasts. Are they the greatest thing that humanity has ever produced? It's hard to say for sure, but let's assume they are. If that's the case, then you should subscribe to both The Drunken Odyssey, John King's wonderful podcast about writing, as well as this one. Subscribe to a certain degree. I don't know if that sounds right. Seriously, though, it's free. It just takes a second. It helps out podcasters because the more subscribers we have, the more the algorithm notices us and promotes us accordingly. All praise be to the mighty algorithm. Now back to the show. Menomina on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. That was Plumage. Good morning. My name is Nick. Uh, I picked that song for a number of different reasons. And you're listening to a certain degree, of course, because I do this on Mondays from 7 to 9 a.m. Uh, one is because of the way the band and the people involved in the band are described in Guy Psycho and The Ziggurat of Shame. And that is a new book from John King, who is my guest today. That was a good segue. It was. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoy coming up with my segues. I also really appreciate that I scripted out this entire conversation and you had time to rehearse it, to practice it. You memorize it. You're off book. Well, you know, uh, it scans really well. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like Shakespeare writing an iambic pentameter. Like it just fits easily in the brain. So your, yeah. your composition on this was spot on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame uh, is a wonderfully kinetic story. Um, so I've got through about the first third. I mentioned this off the air when we were talking. I didn't want to read the whole thing because I will ask so many questions and give up so many of the details that <laughs> will end up being a spoilery type of uh, interview. But I really enjoyed it. That first, I mean, it, it was very easy to read and it was a very fast-paced story, which I always appreciate. But this is not the first time you've written Guy Psycho. Is that right? That's right. So he began as this little postmodern game where uh, I would very often in my short stories like refer to music and sometimes the music didn't actually exist and I thought of it as this sort of like hipster baiting like uh, you know I wanted to get hipsters engaged in arguments about music that doesn't exist but they sure exist because of course they would know they that would illusion. have to yeah and uh, what happened is eventually uh, I, I came back from a trip to Las Vegas of all places uh, for me, like for Guy Psycho, like actually Vegas is a pretty good place for him. Mm -hmm. But uh, with the vision of this bizarre lounge singer in this lounge. And so, uh, yeah, a short story came out of that, the sort of fake Rolling Stone style profile of this postmodern lounge singer and... Yeah, he's kind of been uh, with me ever since. So it's interesting how sometimes the character outgrows and gets sort of into your brain like a little worm. 
mm-hmm. and grows in there because that's how I assume characters grow is they're eating your brain at the same time. Is that correct? That can happen. Yeah. And okay. so Ian Forrester in aspects of the novel, uh, this is, yeah, the early morning uh, kind of conversations people are, are eager to hear. Uh basically argues that characters want to destroy the story you want to tell that they have their agenda, but you have this agenda like, okay, like we have to, we have to get to the top of the mountain so that we could relay the secret information to the submarine that will then travel to the Valley of, you know, and you've got this kind of causal chain and then you've got, uh, you know, this, this, you know, 400 pound Samoan who wants to play the kazoo in the submarine. And, you know, he's trying to compose a symphony using the kazoo. So uh, that's not Forrester's example, but uh, it's a great example. You know, we've got this, you know, this conflict between uh, telling a normal story and then these characters who have their own personality, their own agenda. And then you put more than one character in a room and, you know, uh, things can get, pretty complicated and so you know bad stories or or stories that maybe are all right but we don't remember or love afterwards right it's all about okay just get to that next adventure spot you know Mm. keep going keep moving keep moving and you know i think there's part of that going on in my book you know a fourth word (laughs) keep uh you know just keep moving you know we, we gotta get to the next part yeah but I I think that there's room enough in that story for all of these characters to one, you know, like every character gets a moment and there are a lot of characters. There are a lot of characters. So there's the backup singers, the postman nares, there's the band, there's the accountant who serves as sort of um, a little bit of the uh, audience surrogate. I think kind of viewing it from our eyes in terms of this is craziness <laughs> happening with this band and the things that occur on a day-to-day basis with them. This is show business. And yeah. then not only is it show business, but yeah, it gets incrementally stranger until you're like, wait, how do we get all the way out here? Right. The uh, book reminded me a little bit. I don't know if you had these comparisons or you had this in mind of uh, a movie from the eighties called Buckaroo Banzai across the fifth dimension. I don't know yeah. if you had that in mind a little bit when you were writing it or that came up in terms of uh, uh, anybody who's uh, seen the book or read the book and seen the movie. I think that Guys, I Go in the Ziggurat of Shame, probably, yeah, there's, like if you could imagine the Rat Pack version of Buckaroo Banzai yeah. and you'd get like a sense of what this is like. So uh, I love that movie a lot. Uh, I, I like it. It's hard for me to say that it was influential. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly adjacent to uh, the, the sort of aesthetic. So the hero in this, uh, Guy Psycho, is uh, a renaissance man, uh, is a singer. He's not that old. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> was he not? Oh, he's not from the renaissance. Right. But he knows a lot about a lot of things. He knows a little about a lot of things. <laughs> Now, so but he, he somehow manages to do a lot with that little bit of information. Just out of curiosity, is that, you know, I, I sometimes we write the people that we want to be. Yeah. Is that someone that, you know, you at some point in your life wanted to be or something? Did you want to be a celebrity at any time? Did you want to be a singer at any time? Oh, yeah. For me, I, I think a lot of people of my generation, certainly the dudes, but probably a lot of people like, 
yeah, I wrote literature because I couldn't be a rock star. So, uh, you know, Guy Psycho is kind of a result of me reaching, uh, approaching middle age, although that happened early for me in mm-hmm. my early 30s. Uh, I just saw where I was in my life and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is way less fun <laughs> than even I imagined it would be. And so Guy Psycho is simultaneously, all right, this is what it would have looked like if I had gotten everything I wanted in my 20s. Uh, and wouldn't that be great? And wouldn't that be terrible? That That's kind of uh, me sorting out, uh, you know, how I was feeling about life at the time. And uh, I, I think the nature, the archetypal nature of that character and his just bizarreness as well, uh, yeah, makes him a pretty good conduit for that over time. So I'm not done with him. That's good. Or he's uh, not done with me. I think that's probably more <laughs> like it. I like how you get your midlife crisis over early as well. Well, I, I started it. I'm not sure it's over, but yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, <laughs> as far as writing a book goes, this is your first book. Is this is the correct? first published book. Yeah. So I had a novel I had been working on for years and years and years, uh, which I finished after I finished Guy Psycho. Uh, but uh, I, in the fall of 2007, I got to go to NYU's creative writing MFA program. Mm-hmm. And I decided, and this was a really perfect decision, I think, uh, and I don't make many of those, but uh, it occurred to me I couldn't workshop an old novel in a new program. If I've been spending years on a book and someone goes, well, this chapter doesn't serve any purpose, that was a year of my life, where were you? Like, that's not a fair thing to put on your... Uh, fellow, you know, workshop members. And so well, I think it also makes it more difficult for you to, you know, do that in terms of uh, getting that feedback. And, uh, you know, uh, even uh, start to worry that you're getting old and you're like, well, you get, I need to think like a younger writer and I need to be generative, mm-hmm. you know, like just, you know, get in the sandbox and play. So instead of like, oh, here's, here's my project that I've been dusting for, <laughs> over a decade like no like write something brand new and if it's bad okay well then you finish it and then you go write something else that's new oh it might also give you some different perspective on the original novel as well yeah well i certainly learned what i value as a reader more over time and yeah that first novel deeply reflects the uh I don't exactly want to say pretentious, but the very high-minded and you know uh, ambitious literary novel that I thought I needed to write. And while I I do love that first book, uh, like it's it, it lacks that quality. I think that Guy Psycho has, which is no matter how complicated it gets, it's still pretty easy to read. You know, um, even though it's a bonkers book, each installment of the the craziness itself is relatively straightforward even if it's a crazy straightforward Mm -hmm. let's dig into it for a minute in terms of the mythology the things that you're representing within the book you know we the ziggurat of shame is a a literal place in the book uh, (laughs) there actually is a ziggurat of shame yes yeah it sounds like it's symbolic of something and it's like well it was important that like no there actually is a ziggurat and yeah it, it has shame 
So it is uh, uh, populated by any number of things out of mythology, out of history, that sort of stuff. Uh, were these things you had to research or did you already kind of, were you a buff of these things beforehand or was this something that you had to try to learn about in order to represent it the way you wanted it and to represent it accurately? Uh, all I had to go on at first was the title. I have a list of these sort of literary adventure titles. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I've got maybe 40 or more guy psycho titles. Now, did they uh, any start idiot out, can write a title. Did but, they start out as Harry Potter titles? Because I do think these that are more, Harry Potter and the Ziggurat of Shame would be interesting as well. Well, I think the Harry Potter titles are tying into the more adventure kind of titles. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the the closer analogy would be Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the, the kind of old-timey 1930s serials had these kind of crazy evocative titles that usually were way better than whatever it was the story, you know, uh, turned out to be. Well, yeah, because you're using your imagination, just wondering what that meant, the and, Temple of Doom. And I imagine that partly came out of radio, where yeah. you have only the words and the sounds to, you know, convey the whole story. So, yeah, uh, I, I sort of have, uh, the first thing I had was the title, and I'm like, okay, uh, truth be told, I didn't know what a ziggurat was. I thought I knew, and I didn't know. Uh, so I thought it was going to be one of those Aztec temples, and it's like, no, that's not what it is at all, and mm -hmm. it's not that part of the globe, and it has a somewhat different purpose, and the architecture is different. And so that drew me to Gilgamesh, which turns out it's the oldest work of literature or imaginative work or religion or whatever uh it, it's the oldest historical artifact we have yeah. of that kind and uh what's shocking is yeah like 150 years ago we didn't know it existed <laughs> so uh you know the idea that you know uh the things that we think of by the classics, yeah, well, there are classics out there we don't know about, like just because of the way the history of the world worked. Uh, you know, it, it, it's still very fragmentary, which is pretty exciting if you take these stories seriously and mm -hmm. you think, well, okay, we, we don't have everything. You know, if you thought, oh, uh, you know, maybe Prince has 10 great albums in his vault. Like, we don't know. He may have 20. He may have 30 really bad albums. Like it could, could be from the yeah. last five years of his career where right. it's not. Exactly There's a reason they, he, he left doing. them in the vault. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of excitement in that. So uh, a lot, most of the myths and most of the storytelling comes from, uh, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so uh, I had to both research it and try and do justice to my own retelling and recasting of that story uh, you know, taking it seriously, uh, but not so seriously that it feels like it's, you know, cast in amber. Like, no, I, I, you know, I need it to feel lively and you take some liberties just imagining, well, okay, if these people were real and the story was real, how might it actually shake out? Uh, so it requires this combination of, you know, me earnestly trying to respect the story and me earnestly trying to figure out how I can tell the story so that it feels immediate and part of the problem is when you read very old work like this in translation well the translation 
doesn't carry the weight of excellent prose or dramatic, you know, build up. Sure. So I needed to be able to give myself the freedom to, you know, give that to the reader because I presume if I spoke this ancient language, if I could read it, that it would come off much more strongly in the original. Um, like that may not be the case, but you know, I I want to believe that's the case, and I feel like you know the source material uh, deserves that. So. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of squirrely sort of postmodern reference around there. So it's kind of like, okay, the Marx Brothers go to Gilgamesh <laughs> with uh, the Rat Pack, you know, and there's, you know, uh, a lot of other playful things in the mix. But the mythology actually, uh, it, it's pretty securely in, in Gilgamesh. And sometimes there's overlap, you know, there, there are these archetypes that are kind of shared. And when it comes to that, you know, uh, I, I kind of felt like it was important especially since this guy knows only a little bit about a lot of things. He's like, uh, so it's a minotaur. It's like, no, it's not a minotaur. <laughs> it's like, but wait, so it's this bull creature in a maze, but you're saying it's not a minotaur. And it's like, yes, that's right. And he's like, how can that be? <laughs> and, you know, uh, sometimes guy is also a stand in for the reader where it's mm -hmm. like, okay, how is it that these storytelling elements are kind of recurring in ways that seem so like they overlap deliciously. Uh, and, and so it's kind of, yeah, me uh, finding the, the, the delights of, of Joseph Campbell uh, with a little bit of uh, perverse glee thrown in. Very nice. Now, then you ended up probably doing a little more research than you were expecting to in trying to pull all this together. Or was it about this, what you expected? Uh it was about what I expected, you know, um, the, the sort of grand patriarch of the NYU creative writing program was Yale Doctorow. And one of his maxims was do as little research as you can get away with. And while I feel that maybe glib, uh, and I, I don't want to make it seem like I didn't do research. I did, but uh, you know, like I read this wonderful book, uh, the name eludes me at the moment, but it was, uh, about the discovery of Gilgamesh, uh, and, you know, so I mean, I read a couple of versions of Gilgamesh. I, I I got to read this this wonderful book about its discovery. Uh, I did some research into the culture of the time. You know, uh, I don't want to presume that uh, you know ancient Assyrian culture is you know like just like ours. Uh, even One would though, hope it isn't. Well, in some ways it has to be, and in some ways it can't be. Mm. And so I just wanted some sense of scope you know, um, in order to try and make this seem real. And, uh, you know, also the, I, I, I invented this idea of the dream language. Like they've entered this kind of alternate universe where these different cultures from different times get to, uh, talk to each other in ways that it, it uh, would get insanely technical and would really grind the story to a halt if I had to explain, okay, how can any of these people really talk to each other in science mm -hmm. fiction? You go, well, I've got a, you know, translator. I got a translator that will babble fish. Yep. Yeah. That sort of thing. Very nice. How long did it actually take you to write it? Uh, it probably took three and a half years uh, to write the first draft. So uh, the NYU program, it's two to three years. Uh, I took the three year option cause there's really no upside to graduating, like being there, it's literary fantasy camp. And then, right. Oh, and now I get to leave. Like, I don't, I don't want to leave. 
there's no up like yeah getting to loiter in that place it was very special so uh you know uh so i i graduated i, I moved to the central florida area and so it, it took me maybe a year after that to uh you know uh get the the finishing touches on the first draft and then you know, uh, I, I did a major series of revisions and then uh, Beating Windward Press accepted the book. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't as is. And so uh, my publisher had some really sharp ideas about how to make it more streamlined and, you know, make sure that this just works as a story. Um, you know, like uh, on paper, if, you know, if I were a student going to an MFA teacher going, this is the story I want to tell. Uh, like the advice would just be radical. Like, okay, first get rid of almost all the characters. Second, <laughs> uh, like, don't do it this way. Uh, you know, and it's like, no, no. I, and, and my response had to be that really childish one, which is, but these people are real. Like I can't just, they, they can't not be in the story. They are the story. Um, and even if I have to risk, you know, having too many characters and having it be too complicated. Like I, I couldn't do it any other way. And, you know, a, as a teacher, you know, I, I hate that level of preciousness, but as a writer, uh, that was one of the things I felt like I couldn't compromise on. Like there were things I could compromise on like, Oh, I don't need this flashback. I don't need to, to, to go back and tell everyone's miniature story. Um, you know, and then I had to pick places where I could, expand you know on mm -hmm. things but you know i had to be very economical about that i think i've gone far afield of the question no no that's great i'm i'm actually like the process of writing i think is interesting um and i think that in many cases you know we could go over the technical steps of going through publishing a novel right like mm -hmm. uh, applying and finding an agent maybe if that's the way you went or uh, submitting it to different publishing houses and, and figuring out, you know, getting all the rejection letters. But, you know, in many cases, that story, we've it's been told, mm -hmm. right? You could find that online in terms of step one is this, step two is this. So I think the interesting thing is when somebody is has written something or is trying to write something is, you know, determining the compromises that you will make and the changes that you will make and the ones that you won't. And it's interesting to hear that, even though your advice as an English teacher and as somebody who's going through a process like an MFA is to get rid of the characters, but <laughs> you can't, right? Like every one of them is important for different reasons. And you've given, I mean, I, I, let me ask you this. Did you, for the uh, postmodern heirs, for example, mm -hmm. so the what would be described as the backup singers, but they obviously play They're a bigger role. Yeah. So they are very talented singers, but they also dance, and right. they are way more talented than Guy Saiko himself. Right, and they obviously... He's more the anchor for the whole for, shebang. Yeah, he's the one that the, keeps them all together. But uh, but they all have these personality traits. They all have this these uh, different experiences that give them different knowledge in, in, in these circumstances that they find themselves in. Did you write out... Did you have like a spreadsheet for all of them or all of the characters um, in terms of those uh, attributes? They have a dossier. They do. They do. Would you? Okay. So <laughs> as a, as a writing teacher, you weren't expecting that answer. No, no. I was just curious. Cause I would imagine everybody does it a little bit differently. 
But as a writing teacher, is that one of your recommendations going in when you're writing a novel? So some people would say, you know, don't write without an outline. Would you say don't write without an outline and all this background character development? You may never use it. Well, all right. The most important thing when it comes to writerly advice is everyone is allowed to not take it. Yeah. So as a teacher, like if I feel like a student is not taking my advice out of empty stubbornness, well, okay, that's a bummer. And I feel like, okay, like this relationship isn't working. But very often, you know, more important than the rule or the advice is the rationale. All right. I don't think this is going to work and here's why. Because, like, in my case, I couldn't get rid of characters. Jonathan Lethem, uh, who was one of my teachers who saw part of it, said, yeah, you have to kill off one of these characters. you got plenty of postmodern heirs. Kill one of those. And I'm like, no. Like, I, I you know, uh, that, that'd be like just, yeah, kill off one of your family members. Mm-hmm. And I, I realize it's really, like, it sounds insanely precious for me to say that. And I sound like, uh, you know, someone who's a sophomore undergraduate. Like, no, no, these are, these are, these are my people I can't you sounded just like a sophomore undergraduate just then. Uh, you do a good impression of one uh but you can't kill them off far more sober back then yeah but <laughs> the uh you know more important than that is just the rationale and yeah. what what Jonathan Lethem was getting at and he wasn't the first to express it regarding my book is the stakes have to be high and we have to believe that these people are in danger and so there's a certain zaniness to it and, you know, whimsy and, you know, I love that. And it's part of what draws me to, you know, that story is, and those people is, you know, they are kind of crazy and happy and, you know, they're borderline superheroes. I mean, the postmodern eras are very agile and, you know, uh, they can do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, some of them are doing them in high heels. Some of them are actually wearing appropriate footwear for what they have to do. But, uh, you know, it, it's the case where, you know, listening to, okay, what's behind the advice is I have to take the story seriously on some level. And mm-hmm. I have to make sure that the reader knows these people can get hurt, which is why by the end, like, okay, I, I took it out on Guy. Um, so that by the end, he's no longer the quipping, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra stand in who's too cool to, uh, actually share his real emotions. Like, no, no, he's, he's kind of bleeding out by the, uh, near the end of the story. Spoiler alert. So, uh, you know, when I give advice to a student and I say, look, you need to do this and here's why if the student doesn't take the advice but addresses the here's why, sometimes they come up with breathtaking, brilliant solutions that are way better than if they had just followed my advice directly. Right. Like So as a teacher, I don't want my authority to impress students. I want my wisdom to impress students. And if they take my wisdom and apply it in surprising new ways, well, that's way more interesting than if they just you know, follow the rules. So whenever you hear those rules, you know, show, don't tell. Well, why? You know, like there are good reasons, but it's not absolute. Yeah. How does sometimes the right telling actually, well, that could save you a whole chapter that wouldn't necessarily be interesting to read if you uh, tell rather than show. 
And it doesn't mean you have to tell in a boring way. It's when you're telling when you should be showing and you don't know the difference. That's when it's a problem. So very nice. Well, I think I've gotten a lot of good advice. Uh, We're going to take a break and write some stuff right now. Uh, I have to write the second hour of the show. As I mentioned earlier, this is all scripted. But I didn't write a second hour. I forgot that we were going to be here for two hours. Well, I've got my uh, mnemonic exercises. So while you write, I'll work on those so I can absorb it really quickly. Excellent. That'll be good. John King is here. John, where can we learn more about the book? Where can we buy it? Uh, All the online vendors. Guy Psycho Uh, and the Ziggurat of Shame. Yeah, um, I'll be doing a book event at the Jack Kerouac Project of Orlando on November 2nd. Oh, very nice. So I've got a Facebook page, uh, event page for that. But if you go to thedrunkenodyssey.com, um, yeah, there's uh, links and such. There's a link to my publication. So if you want to check out the original Guy Psycho story or if you want to check out the book or other stuff that I'm in, yeah, there should be a pretty convenient place to to start there. Very nice. Well, we're end to, we're at the end of the first hour already. That went by pretty quick. Would you say? Would you um, say that? Oh, so we've started. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're recording right now. Oh, all right. And also potentially live. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Another song inspired by Guy Psycho and uh, his travels and travails. This is Black Rebel Motorcycle Club with Long Way Down <laughs> on WPRK Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to a certain degree. If you're like me, then you believe deep in your heart that the holidays are all about competition. Who is the best host, the best gift giver, etc.? The reason for the season is to be better than your friends and family. I'm mostly kidding. But if you're thinking ahead of time about the holidays, here are a couple of suggestions from past guests. Reserve a Joyce Farms Heritage Black Turkey from Orlando Meats. Order a custom pothead by Amber from Amber. Potheads by Amber, you can order them from Amber. It can be someone's favorite fictional character, a beloved pet, or even an entire boy band. Definitely ask her to do that. She'll love that. Hey, rent a typewriter from me so you can legibly compose holiday mailings and stuff the envelope with stickers from Dead Disco, Secret Society Goods, Brian Demeter, Deli Fresh Threads, Kicking Cones, and other local artists. That's right, a typewriter rental service. Now who's the crazy one high school guidance counselor? Back to the show. LCD sound system on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. Guy Psycho is playing at my house. Oh, I'm sorry. Daft Punk is playing <laughs> at my house. Good That's morning. My name is Nick. brag for them to make because that song rocks harder than a Daft Punk song. Most of Daft Punk's, yeah, like, discography. Like even, even the stuff that rocks harder than that isn't as danceable as that. Yeah. Like, the voice you're hearing is John King. Yeah, sorry. Good I'm morning, awfully John. opinionated. I can't even wait for my intro. No, that's great. I love it. I love it. So I was picking songs based on your new novel, Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame. Ziggurat? Am I saying that right? I say Ziggurat. Ziggurat? Shame? Am I saying that right? Yeah, with an M, not shame. Okay, great. I do have a lot of shame except for this next segment, <laughs> which we do called Bad Business Ideas, and I'll play the song. Bad Business Ideas. It's time to pick just one. It's gonna be totally legal. 
We hope it won't hurt anyone. So come on, have some fun. Yes, bad business ideas. We go where the winds of capitalism take us because we have no sails or a rudder. Uh, so just before we get into this, you may not have listened to the show before, either on the other end of the radio or podcast dial, or John, you may not have listened to the show before. So I just want to let you know. I have, but it's oh, good. been a little while. So Well, good. Uh, so we're going to, I'm going to present you two bad business ideas. Okay. And so before we do that, I just want to go into what some of the characteristics are. And so me with my lack of capital, I get to decide which one my lack of capital will as go a, towards. As a, here's the thing, John. Okay. You're a writer. You're a podcaster. You obviously have it all going on. So you're going to be the perfect person to bounce these ideas off of. Gotcha. Yeah. Just because of those two things, apparently. I'm also in the room. Yes. You are also my guest currently. <laughs> so you have zero to no choice. Uh, characteristics of a bad business deal. We have to be flexible. You have to be able to pivot and change at any given time. After all, you can't spell pliable without liable. Safety. Sorry, I read that wrong. A lack of safety. That is also a characteristic and a tribute of a bad business idea. Risk. I read that correctly. A lot of financial and reputational risk. Gray areas. Like risk, quite a few of these. We thicken the fine line between good and evil so we can fit better in there. And then funny names. It always helps to mitigate the questions about legality and other issues. If people are laughing, they aren't suing. Just like my grandmother used to say. <laughs> now, John, may I call you John? Yeah. Great. Electronic Arts, also known as EA, is a big video game developer, and they have an office of around 500 people here in Central Florida, located in Maitland, but not, not for long. Uh-oh. Yeah. Soon they will be moving to downtown and the new or uh, creative village Orlando which I'm not sure how it makes it any more village. Do all villages have video game developers? I'm not really sure. In any case, to help lure them downtown, the city is offering them $9 million in property tax savings. So it's a, an incentive. But what about the other companies that want to move downtown? What are their incentives? Well, we're going to give them an opportunity to get their own incentives. With a new idea, we're going to level the playing field for them or the racing field, as it were, we're going to take a page from another great 80s movie and some of the smartest minds of that 80 movie, J.J. McClure and Victor Prinzum. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I'm talking about the characters made famous by Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise in Cannonball Run. A race for rebates, a competition for capital, a rush for resources. Need I go on? Yeah. Oh, great. A dash for dough, a scamper for spoils, a chase for checks, a sprint for salary benefits. We're good now? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, this is great. So what we're going to do is a cannonball run for tax rebates and other things to help you with your business if you move downtown. So what everybody has to do if they want to get these incentives is put all of their stuff in a moving truck. And then we're going to race from wherever you are to downtown. Now, the wonderful thing is... For the people who lose, all their stuff is already going to be in the truck. So we'll get them downtown as well. I'm not sure how we make any money off of this. <laughs> so that's where you come in. Cannonball run tax rebates. What do you think about that so far? Yeah, I... Okay, well, first of all, in order for this idea to really be golden, mm -hmm. 
I, I think you need a couple of extra elements mm. like mandatory segment of the race taking place on I-4 during construction. 100%. I love it. Um, the idea of these moving trucks racing, that that's great. Um, you know, we could add some GoPros and I'm sure there's a reality show in there somewhere, at least Perfect. one. What Any Mad Max elements do you feel like? Or is it uh, going to be dangerous enough as is? I think it's is? already dangerous enough. I okay, mean, great. I-4 without any complications is dangerous it's enough. It's fairly, yeah, without moving trucks hurtling down the road at hundreds of miles an hour. Or brand new ramps just falling out of the sky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so maybe one of the things we could do is find uh, landlords downtown and say we're going to get you people to come in and uh, move in because they'll already be there. Again, their their truck may not make it back to wherever they're from after hurtling down I-4. Well, it would be great if we could get the potential pool of candidates to have psych evals so that we could figure out you know who is the most unstable mm-hmm. so that we could you know just figure out uh, some of the personalities we're dealing with. Um, although I, I would be amazed if there weren't top flight candidates here in Orlando. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And we could just have, if there are any of the ones that we don't feel like would be a good fit, we could just have them keep going to Kissimmee. Sounds fair. Okay, great. Second idea. Do you ever argue with people about the importance or impact of a specific band or song when it comes to music? That's all I ever do. Okay. The Beatles, this, Queen, that, that sort of thing. Which song is the greatest? Who's the best? Bachman Turner Overdrive. Oh, 100. BTO, 1,000%. All of these questions, though, are impossible to answer because of the inherent subjectiveness of the topic. A band comes along at a turning point, and you really connect with it, with one of their songs. That's going to mean, you know, it's more to you. It means more to you than any other song. But that's not necessarily everybody else's uh, experience. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to really argue that. Or is there? Until now. (laughs) That's right. With our new company in no time, we will go back in time to before when the songs were invented. Were songs invented? Is that how you describe them? Is that the right verb? Uh, Well, it depends. So I think in the case of Howard Jones and Mm -hmm. the cars, I think invented Invented is the perfect Invented is the right term. Before they were invented and played them. Dolby for sure. Oh, yeah. Before they were invented and played them for a group of people who have no connection to the music, or in fact any music, they may not even have spoken language yet at that point. We may go that far back. So the deaf who have just recently uh, undergone the sort of neuropathic uh, surgeries to have their hearing uh, not even restored, but just, you know, just uh, created some for sort the first of hearing. Time. Yes. So people hearing for the very first time yes. thrust into this musical matrix. Yeah, except that we're going to go back in time and find people like in ancient oh, Greece. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds more realistic, is a time machine to me. So that would be something if you chose well, it's certainly this. certainly more pure. If you chose this uh, business, then you would have to invent the time machine, flux capacitor, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we could go back, we could play them a song from the Beatles and a song from uh, Seven Mary Three. Who's better? All you Seven Mary Three fans out there are <laughs> really angry at me now. Um, but yeah, that would be the sort of thing that we did. So we could finally settle the debates over which song is the best. What do you think about that one in no time? Well, you know, as a bad business idea, it sounds exciting because having more data really won't solve the problem and we'll just... 
add more uh, fuel to these fires. Sure. So it seems deeply exciting. Well, I feel like it's slightly better than the random lists that just come out, whether it's from Rolling Stone or from some music blogger journalist here and there. I mean, if we can say, okay, obviously the the cave people liked this song better, so this song is inherently better. Well, I, I'm deeply intrigued by the idea. <laughs> and anything that actually just adds more names to the conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Rolling Stone magazine, for example, nowadays is uh, a religious organ uh, all about spreading the gospel of Taylor Swift. So... Uh, yeah, uh, any business that could really, you know, complicate our cultural idea of music uh, while bankrupting investors just sounds like uh, the absolutely quintessential Perfect. American. Great. And also, at the moment. praise be her name. Uh, forgot to say that after you said Taylor Swift. But yeah, so, okay, so now you have a choice in no time or the cannonball run tax rebates. In no time. Okay. You're ready to invent that time machine you're ready to take some sort of, I don't know, cassette player back in time with you and figure out how to play it for people and be safe because obviously some of them may not be very civilized and then see which song is better. Absolutely. And come back and tell us all about that. Well, I think it's important that we convert Daft Punk to 8-track for that purpose, but mm -hmm. no, like in terms of proof of concept, I think it's, it's brilliant. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll go with that. Thank you so much, John. Uh, let's play another song. Okay. So again, inspired by your new book, Guy, Psycho, and the Ziggurat of Shame, uh, we're going to hear Beck with Gamma Ray on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to a certain degree. Volunteering. It's not just good for the environment. It's good for your soul and your feng shui. Also, your peace of mind so much good can come out of volunteering, and one such opportunity is coming up, Maker Fair Orlando, November 9th and 10th. It's fun, it's just four hours of your time, and it's for a great cause. Considering volunteering here with a group of friends and family, or just on your own. More info at makerfairorlando.com. Now back to the show. Back on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida, from the 2008 album Modern Guilt. That was Gamma Ray. Good morning. My name is Nick. Just as a reminder, in case you missed it earlier, that today is the 170th anniversary of Edgar Allan Poe's death. So if you were thinking of doing some seances or some Ouija boards tonight, it might be a good night for it. Absolutely. The forecast is strong for Poe. Poe? Yeah, okay. Mr. Poe. Mr. Poe. That's right. We talked about that. If you missed any of the show today, you can uh, subscribe to a certain degree, to a show called To a Certain Degree on any of the major podcast you can networks. To yes. Subscribing to. And to you can degree. go to a website called To a Certain Degree.com. I really need a new name. To a Certain Degree.com. Another website I would encourage you to check out is The Drunken Odyssey.com. You can also find it on Facebook. My guest today is the host of The Drunken Odyssey and the author of Guy Psycho and The Ziggurat of Shame, John King. Good morning, John. Good morning. Now, I just want to talk about college real quick. I've been. Okay. Okay. PhD in English? Yeah. 
And then later on, you did your MFA in creative writing. Is That's that right. correct? So you've done a lot of college. Too much, yes. Some would say. <laughs> Coming out of high school, what was your expectation or what were the expectations on you for going to college? Were you of the mindset that you had to go in order to be successful, uh, that you had to go just because that was the way things were done, or did you take another path? Oh, it, well, it was a case of, so I, I come from blue-collar stock, despite the fact that I might seem like an eccentric version of the opposite. But uh, I was, you know, uh, sort of destined to go to college before I was born. Like, that was the aspiration of my aspirational family. So, uh, you know, I was relatively academically strong, you know, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um I was a mediocre honor student. I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, and when it came to writing, yeah, I had some surprises I could throw in there, you know. Uh, but I certainly wasn't gifted, or if I was, I was like the dumbest of the gifted kids. Uh, and and so, uh, yeah, it, it was, you know, foreordained before I was born that I was going to go to college. And, you know, they would joke, oh, he's going to be a professor. And... Uh, you know, I think it didn't occur to my parents what that would look like in practice. Uh, so I went to Florida State for uh, three semesters, uh, you know, as right a state out of school, high school, right out of high school. And at the time, it was the number one party school in the nation. Mm-hmm. And I was straight edge and wound way too tight for that kind of, uh, you know, the end of the empire uh, kind of uh, environment. So three semesters, and then what happened? Uh, I thought about quitting school, actually, and that would have caused such a giant rift in my family. So instead, I transferred to Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. Uh, we have uh, proud alumni, such as the, the great Carrot Top. And uh, I got exactly the education I wanted, and you know, the Greek scene was... Uh, it, I, it barely existed, you mm-hmm. know, like if you sought it out, you could find it, uh, kind of but like, you really Cthulhu, to, but, yeah. uh, yeah, you really had to want it. And so it wasn't really this dominant culture. It was a really sleepy campus. And of course now it's a giant sprawling, I mean, it, the campus hasn't gotten bigger, but there are more buildings on it mm-hmm. and there are more students on it. And, you know, they were sending their alumni, Oh, we're getting a football team and it's going to be huge. And aren't you glad? I'm like, no, that was, you're, you're becoming the thing I, you know, uh, desperately needed to escape, escape when I was from, younger. Yeah. Like, no, you were, you provided this, this beautifully calm and introspective academic environment that you seem keen on destroying for more important matters on a college campus. So, so from there, Florida Atlantic graduated, did you go right to your master's program? Uh, yeah, I kind of <laughs> stuck around and ended up, uh, matriculating into, uh, their master's program on an academic track of, of English. So not creative writing, but, you know, uh, studying mostly dead writers. Uh, As we all do sometimes. Yeah. And then PhD at Purdue in North Central Indiana. That was a much different experience in Florida Atlantic. Just slightly, um, <laughs> for no other reason than the weather. But what did you, what were some of the differences on an academic level? Uh, oh, academically, not much. I mean, um, once, you know, uh, 
All right. So for people who haven't done graduate school, like when you're an undergrad, uh, right, you're kind of experiencing the school on this macro level. Mm -hmm. And even if you can kind of focus in on the micro a little bit, it's still very largely macro. So you're learning a lot of different subjects. You're learning a lot of different subjects, but also you just feel like, you know, you're trying to become basically competent at this big thing. Right. And what happens is when you go to grad school, or at least this has been my experience, uh, right, it just everything contracts to about 30 people instead of 3,000 or 30,000. It's like, no, you're, it's you and these 30 people trying to build this deep area of expertise. And so it's a, a much different experience. So, uh, you know, if I had somehow survived being an undergrad at Florida State, I'm sure I would have uh, had a, a perfectly great experience in, in their graduate programs because just the, the kind of pressure of uh, undergraduate life, like it, that's just not what it's like as a, a, a graduate student. Very nice. And was it even more contracted on the PhD level? Or was it about the same as the master's uh, in terms of that analogy, if you will? Well, it's more intense. And also, um, you know, the idea of a, a dissertation and earning your PhD, basically you have to prove that you are a bona fide, fully active, fully functioning mm -hmm. monster, no, scholar. And in order to do that, you line. have to go away for a while and your teachers actually don't help you. It's kind of like you're cast out of the village and then must find your way back. And if you can do that and, you know, demonstrate that you have brought back fire or something, then, you know, you are considered uh, an equal and, you know, you, you get your degree. Uh, but there's a lot of, you know, like two to three years of uh, largely being isolated with the work. I mean, you're still teaching and, you know, there are parties to attend, but largely it's you and this big project that, mostly you have to figure out and like once or twice a semester you can have a, a sit down and talk to your teachers but they can't be your guides like that's not their job instead they're <laughs> your your emergency contact for when you're gone too crazy uh you know in your so own try head to reel you back a little bit yeah what advice would you give if any to someone who is looking staring down the barrel of graduating high school or maybe graduating with their bachelor's degree and considering masters or you know continuing graduate studies well i don't think there's necessarily a you know financially rewarding future in whatever it is that you're going to study now depending on what it is you want to study like there might be uh, but the assumption, oh, more degrees equals more money, more opportunities. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that's necessarily true. Uh, now I loved all of my education, so mm -hmm. this isn't a regret. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I think I definitely would have regarded student loans a lot differently if I knew then what I know now. So then maybe take some time between the two from bachelor's to a graduate degree. See yeah. if it's really a fit. Try and, you know, uh, uh, keep your expenses minimal and, you know, figure out what your big goals are right. and, you know, uh, figure out how college can help that. But also, uh, you know, like do the math. So, I mean, so many things are in negotiation. We were talking earlier about 
uh, all right, how do you keep the things you want in a book and still somehow, you know, get everything accomplished that needs to get accomplished with a certain level of balance? So, uh, you know, it could be that the top school in something uh, may not be the best fit for you because you'll have to go broke and then you'll have to work 70, 80 hour weeks in order to pay for that degree where if you go to maybe a less prestigious school or maybe a more workmanlike school, uh, you know, you could spend less money and get better results. So, you know, I think you need to think creatively about, you know, what your goals are and how you're going to meet them and try and talk to mentors who are attuned to what's actually happening, not people who became successful 40 years ago and can't imagine what it's like for someone starting out now, which is kind of what, uh, all right, let's travel in time and play some music for them. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, people who can see the path to success now, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not they have become successful recently or, or not. Very nice. I like that. Thank you for the advice. And now you're a teacher. And so do you give your students a lot of pop quizzes? No. Great. Great. So that works out really well because I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Okay. So five questions. And I've brought in a trivia expert to do this. His name is Simon Time. He does trivia five nights a week. I'm sorry, seven nights a week around town at different venues. But uh, there are some stakes associated with this. Not actual stakes, but uh, figurative stakes. Omaha stakes. Yes, Omaha stakes are figurative from what I understand because they're not actually from Omaha anymore after they leave. Uh, No, uh, if you get all five right, we become best friends. If you get one or fewer, which would be zero, we become bitter enemies. In both cases, what I'll need is your schedule for the week, allergies, uh, things that you love and hate. And so in one case, I will help you to get the things you love and avoid the things you hate. In the other, I will do the opposite of that. Okay. So if you get two, three, or four, we'll probably stay at the same level of friends. Are you ready? No, but let's do it anyway. Okay, great. Let me turn it over to Simon Time. Hey, hey, Nick, this is Simon Time from the Simon Time Trivia Show, and I've got five general knowledge questions for you and John. Let's begin. Okay. Question number one. The bird called the emu is native and indigenous to what continent? Australia. Let's see if you're correct. The answer, emus are indigenous to Australia. That's question number one. There you go. One more, and you're (laughs) out of bitter enemy territory. You don't seem that enthused about it. Uh, I promise nothing. Okay. Number two brings us to a little bit of science. Which metal... Is heavier. Is it silver or is it gold? Silver. Silver is heavier than gold. With a little 50-50 there, the correct answer, gold, is heavier. Okay, one and one. All right. Uh, So we're not going to be best friends. We still might be bitter enemies. Well, you know, I'm terrified of actually having a best friend because the... A lot of people are. I do this every week, and most people are not that into having a best friend. And in many cases, I think throw the quiz. If we're not best friends, then you can never betray me with the amount of force that you could if you were my best friend. That's true. That's a good point. Okay, let's go on to question number three. All right. 
Number three, Germany's Oktoberfest takes place mainly during what month of the year? Hmm. I'm going to say October. October. The answer, October is incorrect. It is September. In Germany, they celebrate it early because they're celebrating October coming up, uh, I think is how it works. I may have just made that up, but it is actually in <laughs> September. I'm not a beer drinker, so I feel like I was handicapped on that question, but yes. I All accept right. the consequences. Very good. One and two. You have two more chances to get out of bitter enemy zone. Question number four, another 50-50, this one. For my nerdy tendencies, who came first, Iron Man or Spider-Man? Iron Man. Iron Man is your answer. Uh, now, you have a comic book section on your website, thedrunkenodyssey.com. Uh, I have a comic book blogger. Yes. True Barth. Comics are trying to break your heart. Yeah, it's really good. I really enjoy reading that. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about The Drunken Odyssey in a second. But let's see if you're right. You said okay. Iron Man? Iron Man was my guess, yeah. Okay. Do you want to stick with that? Yes. Okay. Now, this is a devious question because they're only one year apart in debut. Spider-Man came in 1962, and Iron Man came after in 1963. Ooh. So Spider-Man was first after all. This is your last chance. Now, again, I will need your itinerary. Uh, mainly just your allergies, if you're, especially if you're deathly aller allergic to anything. And this would only last, we would only be bitter enemies for a week. Okay. So well, I didn't want you to think it would be for a, a If that comes to pass, I will make sure that one of my robot duplicates gets that information to you. Perfect. Thank you. And the final question, guys, is a real slobber knocker. How many state capitals begin with the letter M as in Mike? Seven. Seven. You just pulling that number mm -hmm. out of the air? I like it. I got a feeling. Okay. The correct answer is only three. Montgomery, Madison, and Montpelier. This has been the Simon Time Trivia Show Daily Dose. Good luck, guys, and have a great day. You can find Simon Time on Facebook at Simon Time Trivia, and you can find my most bitter enemy, John King. Oh. At thedrunkenodyssey.com. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get back. We're almost done, John. And then we can go about being bitter enemies. The sun is out. Look at that. Yeah. Is it both ways or am I just your bitter enemy? Are you also my bitter enemy? You'll have no way of knowing. I won't until it happens. Uh, let's hear the Camaros. This is Danger Girl from their album Evil on WPRK. Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to a certain degree. Hello readers, since John is on this episode, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about another local book. Makes sense. Bright Lights, Medium Sized City. It's by author and UCF professor Nathan Hollick, and it's about our very own Orlando. That's right, Orlando, where you likely live. I don't want to give too much away, but it's set during the housing crisis of 2009, which is juxtaposed with the Magic's championship run. It's funny. It's told in some very interesting ways, and it's about Orlando. You can read more about it at otownpaper.com. I interviewed the author and the publisher. You can order it at boroughpress.com. And if you want to go to the release party, that's on November 9th. Check out boroughpress.com events for more information on that as well. Happy reading. Now back to the show.
the Camaros on WPRK Winter Park, Florida. Danger Girl from the album Campanero. Good morning. My name is Nick. You're listening to a certain degree, but not for much longer. We're after gonna, we're going to have to turn it over to the Orlando Theater Hour with Ashley Ann Gardner coming up in a few minutes. But I still have my very special guest, John King, here for a few more. He's stuck with me. Uh, not only on the radio, but as my bitter enemy, as you heard in the last segment, where he, I think, bombed the quiz on purpose so we could be bitter enemies. Well, you'll never know. I won't. Well, not I until won't. next week. Okay, yes. No, that's a good point. Uh, if you missed any of the show, it will be up in podcast format next Tuesday. You can listen to it then. But I encourage you to subscribe now so you can listen to all sorts of people around the Orlando area doing neat things. If you also like podcasts and you like writing and you like authors, a podcast I would encourage you to listen to is The Drunken Odyssey. That's John's podcast that you've been doing for quite a while. If you're almost at episode 400, was that about eight years? Seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. That's that's pretty remarkable to get to. Um, I, I know, you know, looking at it, it's not necessarily always going to come on an anniversary or something in terms of the 100, 200, right. 300, 400, but that's still a pretty amazing achievement to stick with something for that long and continue doing it. Um, looking back, I know you don't want to play favorites by any means, <laughs> but do you have some, some podcasts and some recordings and some interviews? Because you talk to authors, you talk to publishers, you talk to people in the publishing industry mm-hmm. and sometimes others as well. But do you have any that stick out that you said, oh, I, maybe in this case, like I can't believe they said yes to me when I asked them to be on my podcast? I've been spoiled for so long that I'm no longer surprised when people say yes. Um, so, and no, I don't really have favorites. And the reason why I don't is because, uh, and I, I guess, you know, this is very similar to what it is to be a writer. Uh, something great you wrote eight years ago doesn't feel real. It's like, no, the thing I'm working on right now, this is the real thing. And so I'm glad if people have like a positive experience of the podcasting I've done in the last seven and a half years. But if I go to some magic show from seven years ago or so, uh, you know, like I, I, I'm, I'm pleased and I'm happy for mm-hmm. it. And, you know, uh, but I don't go back and listen to them unless I, I'm going to be interviewing a person again. Like uh, it, it's a bit excruciating for me to listen to them. So. Uh, you know, one surprise I had kind of early on was I did get to interview David Sedaris and that happened through the normal channels without the help of Miami book fair. So uh, every November I go to Miami and get to interview all kinds of great writers through the fair. Uh, but they are sort of the conduit. And so that's like an extraordinary opportunity that I have, but David Sedaris, I just asked the publisher and somehow the answer came back. Yes. And so like that was a really that was one where, you know, he didn't say yes. His people said yes. Mm -hmm. And they told him what to do. Uh, I I suppose he could have said no. But, uh, you know, that was a case where uh, an interview I didn't have any reason to expect would happen actually happened. But that and one or two negative negative experiences let me know that. You know, the special thing is when I get to sit down with someone and talk. And so, uh, 
you know, I've been really blessed over the years to be able to talk to so many great writers and interesting people. And uh, I try and interpret writing in a very broad way. So uh, musicians, you know, like whoever creates and shares that work, that's, you know, someone I, I usually want to talk to. And, you know, for me, uh, because I there are so many people who want to talk to me still, uh, I don't spend much time trying to talk to people who don't necessarily want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I don't have time for that. Like, not that I'm great or special, but my time is valuable enough to me where, like, no, the energy is going to go uh, to the people who are respectful and professional and who, Obviously, you know, have some are, enthusiasm for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. What I also like about it, too, is even though you're at episode 398, you know, or I'm sorry, 387. 387. I got the numbers mixed up as I often do. The subjects, because you're interviewing for a longer period of time than say something like uh, an interview on a late night talk show, mm-hmm. you get into a lot of details. They might still be promoting a book or something along those lines, but you're still going to get into a lot more detail about their writing process, what they think about another author those sorts of things. So a lot of the content is still very evergreen. So you can go back and if you do have a favorite author, you just picked up someone, especially a local author, and you want to learn more about them, you can listen to some of the older episodes and still get quite a bit out of them. Was it designed that way on purpose? You were trying to create something that could be listened to later on, or was that just a a happy circumstance? Well, you know, it's a submarine taking on water. So it's always like... a uh, you know, I, I, I'm always moving forward. Um, but in regard to the longer format, like a lot of my favorite podcasts just have a longer format. Mm-hmm. And so when I started one, I tried it out and it felt right. And one of the reasons why it felt right is because a lot of people are nervous. But after 10 minutes of talking, uh eventually you you forget that there are microphones and you forget that there are stakes and that you need to promote something. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's this thing that happens, uh, like, and you know, this is a game you could play if you're obsessive. Like if you listen to my David Sedaris interview, I I think that was like near the end of year one Mm -hmm. that I got to talk to him. Okay. So that was really early on. You can note the point at which he forgets, that this is a thing and we're just talking. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, cause to give you the, the, the background on, on that one, uh, like he was in San Francisco. I was here in Orlando and he had just finished, uh, doing a whole lot of stuff for NPR and they had him signing all of these books and they didn't feed him. And like he had done two events plus extra stuff and, he was hungry and he didn't even know who I was. He, his publisher, the, the publicist just said, no, be here. You will get a phone call. Talk to this person. And so, uh, you know, it turns out by the end of the video, I, I had a difficult time getting him off the phone, even though he needed to chase down food. But for the first 10 minutes, like it's very tentative and he's not quite sure what I'm about. And, you know, when it turns out that, I was familiar with a lot of his work, including his fables. And, you know, uh, I, I wasn't there to ask him all of the obvious questions that he's answered a billion times, Mm -hmm. but 
you know, had writerly questions and, you know, was kind of making observations that maybe he himself hadn't made and getting him to think about it. So uh, to me, the long form interview, what it does is it allows so many surprises and sometimes the things that people don't think are interesting, I'm like, no, no, stop, please. Like, I want to talk about that, that thing, like what's going on with that? Not in an accusatory way or, but, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, I find parts of their story really fascinating that they themselves, having lived with the story for all their lives, like, uh, doesn't seem that interesting to them. Yeah, you forget about that particular childhood event or something along those lines. And so, yeah, one of the things that maybe makes them evergreen is just, you know, you get that moment of discovery. Like, what do we love when we read a good book? Well, that smart thing that we didn't expect to be there that maybe makes us think. And so uh, when I have a very real conversation, like I don't have a long list of like intellectually justifiable questions uh, uh, for the interview. Um the most I'll write down is five questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And usually I write down none. And I don't mean I have no idea what I want to talk about, but, uh, you know, I try and keep it very conversational, you know, because it's that that's my goal is just to have the very real conversation with someone, not to have the formal interview where, you know, I can. Well, and if you're, if you have that ability to, you ask the question and, you hear something that you hadn't thought about or you hadn't considered and you can follow up on that. Having the time necessary to do that is not always going to be available to you, but in this podcast format, it is. And I think a lot of my guests really appreciate that. Like the conversation just feels a lot more fresh than, especially if they're doing, you know, a book tour or, or, you know, kind of going through and doing all of these press events. Mm -hmm. Uh, like eventually it feels like a meat grinder. So, you know, like I, oh, I got to talk about uh, other projects and, you know, I I try and read as much as I can by an author before I sit down to talk, even if I don't have the full hour. You know, I want to make sure that uh, if I'm making generalizations about their work, uh, not because I'm trying to pigeonhole them, but just because I'm I'm trying to learn about what can, makes them tick, right? The more work I have uh, to look at, the sort of smarter my generalizations can be. Absolutely. Uh, in order to provoke conversation. Do you feel like you've become a better writer having done this for so long and interviewed so many writers? No. And I worry that I'm spending so much time talking about writing that I'm not doing enough writing. It's, you know, uh, one of my mentors, Chuck Wachtel, said that we're in the danger of becoming ornithologists when we should be birds. Uh, but a lot of my anxieties as a writer, like, it, are, are calmed by having conversations with other writers and learning about their struggles, yeah. you know, I, I think calms me down. But there is this balance of, uh, you know, needing to produce more work and needing to do research to talk about writers who are producing their own work. And uh, it's not like the comedy world where every comedian has a podcast. Most writers don't have a podcast. (laughs) So it's distracting. Yeah. um, Although my answer may be a little glib. I'm sure that the great conversations that I've had and the things that I'm learning are working their way in. And certainly, you know, their book recommendations and, uh, you know, simply getting to read all of this amazing work, even if it's 
you know, kind of an indirect byproduct. Like, oh, I need to talk to so-and-so. Let me read this work. Oh, this work is amazing. Uh, but, you know, in terms of saying, oh, like drawing a, a, a direct connection. Oh, I read that, which taught me how to do this one skill. Um, I, I, I do worry I'm not doing enough writing, so I'm not as necessarily making that connection. So, you know, as a reader, I feel very stimulated. And as a writer, I feel like uh, I need to run away to an island. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to listen to John's Island or go to John's Island, uh, thedrunkenodyssey.com is the place where you can go. You can listen to The Drunken Odyssey on every uh, podcast channel that's out there. Including Spotify. Yes. And follow him on Facebook. And you also have a YouTube channel as well. I do. Okay. And then Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame. Ziggurat, Ziggurat of Shame. You say tomato, I say Ziggurat. Uh, is available everywhere you can buy a book. You say tomato, I say potato. That's exactly right. Both delicious. <laughs> That's the important thing. Anything else you want to talk about before we got to get out of here? Um, you know, have you considered what Amway can do for you? Oh, boy. Okay, we're going to go. Let's shake hands on the air because I think that makes for good radio. Thank you very much, John. Let's leave it uh, with one last song dedicated to Guy Psycho and the Ziggurat of Shame, The Fall of Troy by Tom Waits on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. You've been listening to a certain degree. And that's the show. Thanks for listening to a certain degree. Where do you go from here? Tell your friends about how awesome this episode was. Subscribe to the show wherever you subscribe. Also, check out to a certain degree.com. That's T O A certain degree.com. Just a reminder that this episode and every episode is recorded live on WPRK 91.5 FM. You can listen every Monday at 7 a.m. on your radio or streaming on the internet. That's when shows are at their peak of freshness. Peak freshness? I don't know. Thanks for listening. I'll truly miss our little talks.